Jesus, we thank you so much for your word and, and for your, the power that it has in our lives to, to change us from broken people to whole people. Your spirit does that through your word. And we thank you and we trust you, Lord, that you, you put very specific messages in the word for us. And I pray that whatever you would have for us, for these people in this room today, Lord, would be clearly proclaimed uh, from your word. Jesus, we love you. We, we give our lives over to you. Lord, we, we are not in control of our destiny, but you are. And we want to surrender to that. Give you your place in our life that you chose us and you've set us aside for very special things. And we just thank you for every single person in here who is so special in your eyes. You say that you count the very hairs of our head. You know each one. And you, you give, give them to us and you name them. Oh, Lord, you're so wonderful to us. And uh, thank you, Lord, for being with us even when we don't understand or see you. In your name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 38 is a rarely taught chapter. People hardly ever dig into this chapter, as you're going to see, because it's pretty graphic. It's pretty um, almost adult in some ways. And so we're, we're going to um, PG it down a little bit because there's some little ears in here. Uh, but we will, no, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, so as we go through it, just recognize. But God puts things like this in the Bible very often. There's a lot of things in the Bible. You may have seen on Facebook recently, there's this guy that's been going around, and he took a Koran cover, and he put it on a Bible, and he took it to people, and he said, read this, and, do you, and, and he'd say, and there's violent parts of the Bible, and he would say, do you think that's violent? Do you think it's horrible? Do you think we should let people read that? And the people are like, oh, of course not. And, and he'd say, well, it's really the Bible. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, which is totally misrepresenting the stories. But anyway, as you, as you see that, the Lord does put in a ton of violence and horrible things in the Bible. Many of the heroes in the Bible have terrible things that they did. We've seen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their, their amazingly flawed life, mainly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Joseph. Um, so we see these in there, and it can, it can cause us some difficulty. It could cause us trouble saying, why is there so much flaws? I mean, are these the heroes of our faith, really, that are this messed up? But it's what makes the Bible believable. It's what makes it true. It's, it's a real important thing for us to understand that God doesn't give us these supernaturally powerful heroes to worship. He gives us real men and women who had real problems. And today we're going to see t people in Jesus' family who had some major problems. Major problems, all right? So, the man that we're going to look at today is Judah. And you might have been thinking, well, wait a minute. Last week in chapter 37, we started Joseph's life. And we did. We saw the, the 12 brothers, 11 of them sold, or 10 of them sold Joseph into slavery down in Egypt. And then the Bible pauses and it gives us this story about Judah, one of the older brothers. And Judah, this story is in here because Judah has no 
integrity. No integrity at all. Joseph is a picture of who? Jesus. Last week we studied and we saw so many awesome pictures of how Joseph is, I mean, he's basically Jesus. He's a picture for us of Jesus. And today we're going to see his brother Judah and how Judah has no integrity. He's a picture of the opposite of Jesus. He has no integrity, especially in his relationships with his family and in his relationships with women. No integrity. What are we going to see in Joseph next week? If you know or if you've looked ahead at all, Joseph meets, Pharaoh, or he meets Potiphar's wife next week. And she's a piece of work, right? And we're going to see Joseph, he behaves with so much integrity it's wonderful. And you see it in his relationship with women and his family. We've already seen that he loves his brothers and he wants integrity, righteousness in his family's life with his father's business and all that. Well, Judah has no, none of this integrity, especially with women and his family, which is really where your integrity is cl most clearly seen in your life, men. He's a contrast to what we're going to see in Joseph's life. Joseph is a picture of integrity and purity. Judah is a, a picture of sinfulness and impurity. All right? So why is this here? Again, it's to serve as a contrast for the real hero of our story here in Genesis, with the, which is Joseph. Diamonds. When you guys go buy your woman diamonds and they show you the diamonds, where do they put those diamonds? On a black velvet thing with light, right? You know what I'm saying? Okay, so I know you guys all bought your ladies' diamonds for Christmas, so you just experienced this recently, I'm sure. <laughs> There's a lot of elbows being thrown in here right now. All right, well, Judah and this chapter, chapter 38 of Genesis, is the black velvet background to the diamond of Joseph's life. That's what it's here for. It shows us what a sinful life looks like apart from God. This is just what it looks like. It's not like sinners have to try to be sinful. This is just what they all look like. What I look like when I live a day apart from God. It doesn't mean I'm out murdering kitty cats. Or th that might not even be sin. But <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Oh, got the icy stare of death from a couple of you. Okay. It's not that I'm out there committing heinous crimes when I, when I live a day apart from Christ, but my life in general, if I am apart from Christ, I am darkness because Jesus is light. So Judah here, he's, he's living his whole life apart from Christ, apart from God, with, and he has, doesn't have the Holy Spirit working integrity in the inner chambers of his heart. That's what Judah shows us. And it, we're going to study this today because we don't want to be Judah. He does whatever he wants. You guys hear that American dream sometimes that we should be able to do whatever we want? You should be, if, if you're wrong, you should be able to be wrong. If you're this, you should be able to be that. That's not the way the world works. God didn't create us so that we could just make decisions to sin. He created us to be with him 
And then he gave us free will so that being with him wasn't forced. It wasn't rape. That's what forced love is. No, he wants true love and relationship with us. He, he, he wants us to make one choice, to be with Christ, to spend our time with him, to give him our heart and accept his love. So that's how this all kind of fits together. So as we open now to Genesis chapter 38, we're going to start our, our time here. And it's called, I, I named this sermon, Choose Your Friends Wisely. And you'll see why in just a sec. So Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. And he visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So, first verse, we see that Judah leaves his family. Leaves the body that he was a part of. In our context, we could say he leaves the church. He's had this whole situation where his family was kind of messed up. He's had all kinds of trials and tribulations in his life. And he decides the best way to deal with it is to leave the church. Leave his church. Leave his family. How many times have I seen someone stop coming to church, stop going to church for various reasons. It doesn't fit into their plans. It's not convenient. It's boring. It's full of hypocrites. It's full of weirdos. It's full of geeks. It's got bad music, uncomfortable chairs. No one says hi to me. There's so many reasons I've heard. I've used a few of them. There's been times I stopped going to church. I mean, I've been saved since I was 12, and so it's been a, I've, there's a lot of Sundays in there where I decided I'm not going today for various reasons. Now, luckily, praise the Lord, those, those have never been real long stretches or seasons in my life, and I didn't let that become a habit. But when people do, it, 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 it can have major consequences in their life. He goes to fill this void of family and relationship in his life, guess where he goes? To a pagan pal, to an ungodly friend, to a worldly buddy. Hira means noble family. Noble family. So in other words, this is this worldly friend. Instead of going to church, he's like, I'm just going gonna to get a friend who's really important to me in the world. And he goes to Hira, which means noble family. So this is a good guy to hook up with in the world. He's a respected person in the world. He must know how to get things done, how to make a way in the world. Like a drug dealer or a social service employee, he knows where to go when you need something in this world. He knows how to get it for you. He's kind of the hookup, all right? But don't ask him about morality. That's for the common people. I deal only in the facts. Don't trouble me with ethics. That would be what Hira says. This guy represents the world as our friend. When we say, I'm going to buddy up with the world instead of going to church and being part of that family. There are two different places, two different things, the world and church. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James says a really almost offensive thing. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God warns us that we're not to be buddy-buddy with this world. We can't be more than friends. We can't be really, truly, deeply connected with the world. We can love them, we can serve them, we can minister to them and witness to them, but we cannot have this attitude where we are somehow on the same team or everything is cool between us and them. Because this doesn't work that way. It's not. The world does not care about your kingdom, and it does not care about your king. That's where the line is drawn. That's where we can't have this connection. That's where it's broken down. Is because our identity is with our king. The world wants you to defect. Hiram wants Judah to defect to his side. And Judah's all in. Judah went looking for him to defect away from the family that he was a part of, that God put him in. Judah wants out. I'm done with it. Luckily, God's not totally done with him, but we'll see that later. The world, your identity is with your king. The world wants you to defect, and they box it in this nice package of drinking buddies or just hanging out or being part of a community or club or gang all these different things, but it's all just what the Bible says is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. They, are, they can be your friend, but they're not the best kind of friend. And we're going to contrast the way that the world is our friend with someone else named Jesus who wants to be our friend in a different sense than what the world does. John fifteen thirteen. Jesus tells us what the best kind of friend is. And this is what the world can't do. No matter what the world is for you, how it tempts you, how it draws you, it can't do this. Nothing in the world can. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So Jesus says, in the end, only Jesus is your true friend. Only Jesus can be in the truest sense of the word, your friend. Even though he demands to rule over your life as well, he says it's for your best. And he proves that it's for your best because he says, or actually, he died for you first. He gave his life for you first. And then he demands to rule over your life second. And he says that this is the definition of real loving friendship. So we're going to keep an eye on this friend, Hira, through this chapter, because he's going to show up at very interesting times. Hira is going to be in Judah's life, just kind of like, hey, let's do it this way. Let's go here. You're okay. You don't need your family. I'll take their place in your life. When Judah should be reaching out for help, from his family or going back to his family, Hira is all fine with saying, no, I'll fulfill that role in your life. I'll be your friend. But Hira's not dying for Judah. Hira isn't giving Judah direction for his life, saying, I will rule over your life because you mess everything up, Judah. No, Hira is wanting Judah to do whatever Judah wants. And Hira is making a way for Judah to get away with it. 
and it's going to hurt him a lot. It's going to hurt Judah a lot. It's going to hurt a lot of other people a lot too. But Hira doesn't care. I'm just a friend. I'm just a drinking buddy. I'm the DD. We get to verse 2 now. And Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name, who, whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of jokes you could say about that, but... Verse 4, so she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. His last name was the Barbarian. Verse 5, <laughs> and, she, and she conceived yet again and called his name Shelah. I think they were hoping for a girl right there, but uh, he was at Chezib when she bore him. So Judah is now living his own life. Enough with the family. I'm doing things my own way. That's what Judah's saying. He marries a Canaanite. It's the first thing we see here. So if I was talking to Judah, if I was counseling him biblically, I would say, so for the most important relationship in your whole life, the, the, per, the one person who's going to influence you the most and, and raise your very children, you choose a woman who has no spiritual life at all. A, a, an enemy of God. That's who you're going to pick? Great choice, Judah. And I say that with sarcasm, in case you didn't get it. This is a recipe for disaster. But a Judah doesn't care, because a Judah makes their own choices. Are you a Judah? Do you make your own choices? I'm going to marry who I'm going to marry. I'm not going to have God tell me. I'm not going to marry someone based on the the things that he says. I'm going to marry who I want to marry. I want to do what I want to do. I want to have the job I want to have. It's a recipe for disaster. It's hard to see, uh, it's not hard, excuse me, to see as the children of Israel are now living in this land of Israel, but right now it's filled with all these Philistines. It's not hard to see how they're rapidly being corrupted by their Canaanite neighbors. And it's not hard to see why God is going to very soon take them out of the promised land down to Egypt and put them in a very secluded, safe place for them to grow into a nation. Because we're going to see that here in a minute. Now, they'll become eventually slaves down there and it'll get rough, but it's all part of God's plan to bring them back into the land to run things, to own the land, and it will be their promised land. But you can see how God is concerned about the purity of his people. And he doesn't want them marrying all these Canaanites. These Canaanites have no spiritual life. They are doing human sacrifices. They are, they are doing horrible things in the name of trying to know God, but they don't care about knowing God. They're very humanistic. And Judah also tries to make choices for other people. Look at what happens in verse 6. So Jude is very concerned about making his own choices. I'm going to marry who I want to marry. I'm marrying a Canaanite. You can't say anything, God. In fact, to get your influence out of my life, I'm leaving my whole family. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to go to church and hear what I should do with my life all the time. I'm getting out of there so I can silence those voices in my head of what, do this, don't do this. I'm going to do what I want to do. He's also telling other people what they should do. So verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So his firstborn, Ur, he decides to do an arranged marriage. He's going to tell him what to do too. So not only am I the master of my own destiny, I'm your boss as well. Now, when I was growing up, I used to think arranged marriages were like crazy. Now that I have six boys, totally different opinion. (laughs) I can see 
massive credit to the arranged system, arranged marriage system. So I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, I don't want them making it. Anyway, you can't force your kids to do stuff, though. And Judah, he, he's, he's got this thing where he's just, he wants to force his will. He, he is the guy that's going to make the decisions. It's his flesh. It's he wants to be controlling. All right, verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Whoa. Just throw it out there like nothing, God. Wow. Things are not going well for Judah. It might be that God is trying to get a hold of his life to wake him up. But if someone's child dies that you know, do not tell them it was God trying to wake them up. Don't. Got it? I don't even need to say much more about it. God has a way of getting a hold of someone's heart. And we can get involved with that work by loving and praying for them and bringing the word and godly situations to the, the trials of their life, comforting them. But do not say, oh, God took your son because you're wicked. You know, God does do that sometimes. But we don't know. I mean, only, this is the only place really where God says, he was wicked, so I killed him. Okay, maybe it was an act of mercy. Maybe it was him trying to get a hold of Judah's life. I don't know what it is if my friend has a child die. I don't know that God is trying to get a hold of their life. Maybe they've been honoring God with every part of their life, and God wants to show off their faith, like Job. And so I come along saying, God's trying to get a hold of your life, obviously, and they're like, you are a horrible friend. I don't like you at all. Take your Starbucks and go. I can... You know, we just have to be wise and loving. We don't know those things. We have to act with humility. God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. But he's also mysterious. He doesn't want you to know everything. He wants you to trust him. And in those situations, so what someone really needs to hear is, I'm very sorry for what you're going through. Let's trust the Lord together. We can't understand why everything happened, but I know that he's trustworthy. So let's look for how we can trust him, look for how we can put our trust in him, look for how we can worship him and study his word together. That's how we can minister to someone in that type of situation. So a real important thing that we see there. So we get to verse 8 now. Judah said to Onan, the barbarian, Go in to your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he dis did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Wow. There's a lot there. So Judah is trying to do the right thing here. He, is, uh, he tries to take care of Tamar. So he has invited Tamar into his family. He's basically adopted her as a daughter when he had her marry his son Ur. So Tamar is his responsibility. And, and the way that they would take care of a widow in that culture, the law later in, it, in the book of Numbers, we're going to see that the law is actually going to become in Israel that if a man and woman get married and the man dies without them having kids, that his brother is supposed to marry her and raise children for the name of the dead brother. That's how they would take care of her as a widow. They didn't have social security. 
So she would have nobody if the husband died with no kids. The kids are what was the social security. So they would take care of the widow, the mom. Once the husband died, once the dad died, the kids would be in charge of that. So a brother would come along and he would marry her, give her a kid, so that that kid could take care of her. This is this was the most moral choice. So Judah here, he's trying to do the right thing, okay? Um, but Onan dies too because Onan didn't want to take care of Tamar or care about the family of his, uh, of his older brother. This is not a verse about family planning. Some people, some denominations, very large ones, rhyming with Mathlic, say that this verse is, <laughs> is about family planning and that if you use family planning, God's going to kill you. No, that's not what this verse is about at all. This verse is about family plotting, saying, I don't want to take care of my responsibilities of my household. I don't want to be involved with what God wants me involved with, caring for people, I want to, again, not care about my family. That's what this is about. <laughs> Some people want to have lots of kids, and to that I say, God bless you. You will be tired. It will be a lot. You can rest from your work. God could have worked for many more days creating the whole world, right? He, he worked for how many days? Six days, right? Making the whole world. And he could have kept going for forever, Right? But he decided, eh, it's time to rest. I think with our families, we could do the same thing. Two, three, six, time to rest now. If you don't want to rest, God bless you. All right. Well, here it seems now like Judah's family is cursed. His two older sons have died. His youngest son, Shelah, is named Shelah. Judah can't get a break. And he still has this woman that he has the responsibility to care for. And she keeps, or the people that she's with keep dying. So, verse 11, Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow. I just want you to know, Judah is being a total jerk. Total jerk right here. Hey, just stay a widow in your father's house. In other words, get away from me, widow. I don't like you. I don't want to take care of you. Get away. Till my son Sheila is grown. Yeah, maybe I'll take care of you at one point. I know that's the right thing. I know that, yeah, but we'll see. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So Judah's like, I can't deal with you right now. Go back to your family, because this one's closed for business. It's so sad. He's like, I'll call for you later. And, and I see this happen in families today. A dad is just like, I am done. I can't take care of you guys. I can't handle your, your craziness. I'm out of here. And guys take off. Moms take off. People take off who, who should care about the responsibilities of their family, but no. They decide, I don't want to do it. I don't want to deal with it. And it's so not what Jesus would do. It's not what Joseph would do, right? 
Joseph would take care of his family. Judah is a picture of sinfulness and selfishness. And that's, there's nothing more selfish than saying, my family, the people who depend on me and care about me and, and need me to care for them, I'm done with you. I'm, de- I'm done. Can't do that. Verse 12. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted or trying to be comforted. And, and he went up to the sheep shears of Timnah, he and his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. All right, so Judah's wife dies now. And he's real bummed out about it. He's sad and he's grieving. And so he says, I deserve a break today. And so who does he go to? His friend. His friend, Hira, the Adulamite. And he says, hey, buddy, what, I'm feeling down. I'm a little sad. What do you think I should do? Now let's pause. If he was godly, if he was Joseph, what do you think he would have done when his wife died? He could have grieved her, but he would have come to the Lord and he said, what's the right thing for me to do right now? And he would have gone forward with doing the right thing. But he goes to the world. And so what is the world's suggestion? Let's go get a prostitute. That's what the world says. That's what he's going to do here. He teams up with his worldly friend. He says, I deserve a break today. And the world is all about giving you opportunity to sin and feel like you deserve it so you don't feel guilty about it. Hey, you've been having a rough day. Go get hammered. Hey, you, you, you just do a little bit of this. Smoke a little bit of that. No consequences, no judgment here. That's what a worldly friend does. Is They, they don't want you to think that anything is that just comfort yourself. Don't think about the ramifications. Just comfort yourself. What does Jesus do to people who come to him? He comforts them the right way. He really, truly comforts them from the heart. It's so amazing when you've been comforted by God, but people don't want to wait for it. They don't want the comfort that Jesus offers. They want the comfort the world offers. And the world's comfort ends in a hangover or an STD. Like, why? God specifically curses those ways of comfort so that we could learn to come to him for our true comfort. I mean, I'm not saying your life is going to be easy as a Christian. You're going to have people die. Bad things are going to happen. But God says, I will comfort you. Come to me. Judah, he pictures for us. And I'm going to go with my friend. I'm going to go with the world. What does the world have for me? Don't try to cheer yourself up with the world. It only brings more aching to your soul. And look where it leads to, Timnah. You guys, does that ring any bells for you Bible scholars? It's the same place that Samson ends up. So we kind of see that this place has a reputation for women of the night. Verse 13, and it was told to Tamar, saying, You look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. So Tamar realizes that she's never going to be taken care of, so she takes matters into her own hands. Verse 15, so Judah saw her, and he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned 
to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. How polite. For, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? So Judah figures out how to get some comfort. His worldly friend has given him the suggestion. He buys, he's all in, okay, in the arms of a prostitute. That's a worldly idea if I've ever heard one, right? It seems like every time this worldly friend shows up, there's bad choices happening. When is it ever right to sleep with someone? Only in marriage. That's where it's blessed. Anything else is the world's influence trying to steal your blessing. Anything else. You might think, oh, but we love each other. No, you're going to get, you're going to experience a curse. But I can't see how it could possibly go wrong. Oh, it can. You might not see it, but God says, if you're not married, it's a curse. You will be cursed. Stop. Don't do that. And the world is doing everything. We have Hira the Adulamite on every TV show right now saying, it's fine to sleep with someone. You got to try it out. Try it before you buy it. Right? And the whole world has this attitude that it is fine. And God is like, you guys are going to get cursed. It's not me. It's the natural. That's the way it works. I designed it to be in marriage, to be blessed. That's the way you can get the blessing. But the world is not concerned with you getting the blessing. The world wants you to do what you want and not have anyone telling you what to do. This is why we wait for marriage. God could have provided for Judah. He could have provided a wife. But Judah isn't interested in God's blessings. He is interested in his own desires. And that's the difference, and that's why we wait for marriage. Do you want your relationship, your marriage, to be about yourself or God? And God, and Judah, excuse me, cares about himself. Joseph, next week, cares about God. And we'll see why was Joseph able to make amazing stands for purity? Because he loved God. And he cared about God. And he wanted God's blessing in his life. Joseph's going to end up married with all kinds of awesome kids. He's going to be super happy. Well, he's just lucky. No, he did it the right way. And God blessed him. So, if you sleep together and you get married, does that mean God is going to curse you continually? Yes. No. <laughs> Tricky. No, but there will be consequences. Y'all know that. There will be consequences. If you really want to experience all of God's blessing, come to him and wait to do things the way that he says. Look at verse 17. And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is your hand. She gives him three things she wants. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. What will it cost you? What is sexual immorality going to cost you? If you decide to do it, 
three things. Your signet, which was the seal of a business transaction. It was like on a ring or a necklace where they would melt wax and stamp it. And this signifies that I, me, Sean, has made a, a, a decision, to, and, and this, this is from me. Whatever I sign has me behind it. So it speaks of your person, your soul, who you are, agrees with this. She wants it. Sexual immorality demands it. You have to be all in. It will take who you are, and it will attach it to this person and to this sin. Look at the second thing, cords, chains. Speaks of your wealth, your possessions. You guys have seen all the rap videos, their big old chains. This was Judah. He was a rapper. Gangster, big old chains. They show money. That's the reason, just rap lingo, FYI, the reason why they share chains, show chains is, and have the gold teeth is to show that they're rich. Okay? Very simple. I want you to know I'm rich, so I'm going to wear big chains. Well, that's exactly how it was back in the day. And she says, I want your money. I want who you are, your person. I want your money, and I want your staff. And the staff that a man would have back then spoke of his position. <laughs> we even say things like, oh, my staff will handle that. Have my people call your people. I'm in charge, my staff. <laughs> That's funny. Um, it means I'm the boss. What am I the boss of? What, what's my position? Sexual immorality takes your person, your possessions, and your position. The prostitute wants everything. When a man gets sucked into immorality, the cost is high. The, the price is painful. But men are so willing to give it. Yeah, take my stuff. Take my person. Take my possessions, my position. Anything for a one-night stand. And they just don't get it. Look at verse 27. Can a man, or excuse me, excuse me, in Proverbs, they give, we get some wisdom about this. Proverbs gives us the truth, man. It's awesome. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 through 29, it says, Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? In other words, can you give fire a hug and not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. And then verse 32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and he who does this destroys his own soul. Now the Bible is very clear. This is the curse. Your soul gets destroyed. You lose your, your person, your position, your possessions. All of it becomes a slave to this and covering up what you did. So check this out. Verse, back in Genesis 38, verse 20, Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite. Oh, it's so neat how this worldly friend is right there when you want to cover up your sin. And, and it's also amazing to see how ineffective the world is at doing anything to really help. You're going to see that in one second. He sent the young goat by the hand of the, his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. How ineffective of him. Verse 21, then he asked the man of the place, the man of the place saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, uh, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. 
Also, the men of this place says there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Ah, oh, let them take him for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. In other words, he's saying, This is going to be bad for my reputation. I got to find her. Because I don't want people to think that I go into harlots. But you did. But you do. Judah. It's funny also how the world can help you get into it a mess. This friend took him right down there, right? But his friend is completely ineffective at helping him get out of it. I love oh, the world. Just, yeah. Verse 24, it came to pass after three months that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. And Judah said, bring her out that she may be burned. Wow. It's very common for people to be the most harsh on someone who struggles with the exact same sin that they do. Anyone remember Jimmy Swaggart? I actually didn't know him, so I looked him up. I had heard about him, but I didn't know the details. So Wikipedia is really handy. Jimmy Swaggart, there was this other pastor that he ratted out for going to see a prostitute, right? And this guy was so mad at Jimmy Swaggart that he sent a guy to spy on him, and he went to this motel and set up video cameras. And so this other pastor, and this is all, like, no wonder people think the church is crazy, because this part of the church down the south was. And so this pastor spied and caught Jimmy Swaggart along with 10 other guys one night with this woman. And they caught him. And he was like, super, and so this other pastor blackmails Jimmy Swaggart and is like, if you don't tell people that you were lying about me, I'm going to release this footage of you. Well, Jimmy Swaggart didn't do anything for like six months, just wanted it to go away, was trying to be friend with the Adulamite, okay? And the, the guy's like, fine. The, the guy, the first guy was like, fine. And he released all the tapes and he was outed and he later got caught with like four other prostitutes and stuff. It's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy story. And it's funny how our attitudes in dealing with sinners show a lot about our own heart. Forgiveness, patience, and love come from a heart that knows it's forgiven of our own stuff. But when we're judgmental, harsh, hateful, even brutal on people, it shows that you're probably doing the exact same thing. Verse 25. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. Ha! So Judah acknowledges them and said, She has been more righteous than I because, she did not give, because I did not give her my son, Sheila. And, but, and he never knew her again. Judah acknowledges that he was wrong. But he never speaks with her again. So instead of reconciliation, instead of Judah apologizing for anything, there is division. That's how we know Judah hasn't changed. He's just like, well, crud, you got me. Instead of giving his son to her to make things right, he runs away from the problem. Just like a dad who skips out on his family. 
instead of taking care of what they need. This is not the way to handle problems. Fine, I'm wrong, I'm out of here. You're all better than me anyway. Judah is being overdramatic right now. And it's common. Judah is a picture of how not to have integrity. Judah could have still, and then the thing about integrity is it's never too late to start having it. Judah could have, at this moment, made things right and done things the right way. But he doesn't. He just wants the problems to go away. And that's how I can identify an immature believer, is when they're so concerned about getting their lives to be more comfortable and their problems to go away that they don't want to do what's right. Okay, so someone comes to the, know the Lord, but they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're, they're living together, sleeping with each other, whatever. And you come to them and you say, hey, God wants you to be pure. And so it's a difficult thing to do, but you need to move out. Oh, but it's going to cost so much money. It's going to be so difficult. They're going to get offended, blah, 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 blah. Do it or go get married. Those are your two choices. Move out or go get married. That's how to do the will of God. But it's too difficult. I just want these problems to go away. I'm just going to ignore them and hope they go away. Your marriage is going to suffer because of it. Your life is going to bear the curse. Don't do that. And you can tell the sign of an immature Christian, someone who needs to grow in faith, when they, they're willing to, to continue sinning just because it's easier. Verse 27, now it, came, uh, yeah, now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, the twins were in her womb. This is so often here in the, yeah, double, what would you say? Double the, double the fun, double the pleasure, right? All right. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out expectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. All right. Interesting story. And what I'm going to tell you might blow your mind, but it actually is a picture of Jesus. What? Okay, so scarlet, and it's really crazy, but you're going to get it at the end. Scarlet threads in the Bible show up, like, all the time. And you're like, why are they always talking about scarlet threads? And scarlet thread, the scarlet thread of the old, is in the Old Testament, and it weaves its way through the Old Testament, and you see it at different points, and the scarlet thread is always pointing to the cross. Okay? The scarlet thread is pointing to the cross. It pictures Jesus on the cross. So here we, we have this situation, which I'm going to explain in a moment. We also have Rahab, the harlot. Interesting. Another harlot, another scarlet thread. She lowers the spies that came to spy out uh, Jericho in a scarlet thread. Or she puts a scarlet thread around her, her um, house, the doorpost window, yeah, so that they wouldn't come and kill her. It, it spoke of protection. She is also in the genealogy of Jesus. She's one of his grandmas. Isaiah 53, we have this 
Jesus being portrayed as a scarlet worm that makes thread. Very interesting. We've studied that once before. We'll look at it again. And these all point to Jesus on the cross, and there's more too. Here, Jesus is seen as crucified, killed. The scarlet thread speaks of his blood being poured out. So you have this one baby showing up, arm out, scarlet thread put on, which speaks of crucifixion, and then he goes back into the womb, which is like death, like the grave, the tomb. And instead, another baby is born. So here you have, it's like Jesus dies and his church bursts forth. A different life comes forth after Jesus' death. And it's like a mystery. And at this point, uh, Judah fades fades into obscurity. He barely matters anymore in God's economy. But we get this little picture of Jesus and this, this... weird situation with the wrist and the things, but it's a scarlet thread, so we know it points to Jesus. And so we see this life appeared for a moment, but then it was taken away, and then a new life came, and and the midwife is freaked out. She says, where did you come from, this new life? That's because the church was a mystery. No one expected there to be a different life, a different organism, a different thing in the world called the church. And that's what happened. And then the other baby came out who had the scarlet thread came out and he rules. He, he, when he comes back again, when he shows up again in this world, he's going to be the king. Very neat picture. But Judah, now he's fading away. He, but get this, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who he got pregnant with these twins, this Canaanite ungodly woman is the direct great-great-great-great-great-grandma of Jesus. Her son Perez is the great, direct, great, great, great grandpa of Jesus. I don't know how many greats, like 25. I'll I'll do a long time, but it's for real. It's so incredible how God takes broken and messed up people and lives and situations and saves them by adding his son. It's like there's this pot of stew with nasty stuff. When I was in uh, Thailand once, I went to, I was staying at an orphanage on a mission trip in Thailand, and for an entire week, they would have a big pot. It was like this big for all the orphans. There's like 45, and, and then all the people staying there. And, and in this pot, they would just keep it boiling for a week. And they would put, there was sticky rice that they'd go with it, and then the stew that would just be in there. It was very, very, very spicy. And when I, mean spi- when I say spicy, I mean it had no flavor at all, just heat. And the heat was like down here down in this area. It was horrible, (laughs) terrible, terrible stew. And one time I found a bird beak in it, and that was, that was a day. After that day, I I, I walked a mile down to the gas station to have an ice cream every day for breakfast. I had an ice cream sandwich for breakfast. I couldn't do it. I could do it for lunch and dinner, but the three times a day thing, oh, I just couldn't, oh, I couldn't do it. But anyway, um, we are like this stew, our messed up lives. There's nothing good. And yet, Jesus is like the magic ingredient. And when, when he gets added into our life, it, it fixes everything. He takes care of things. He makes things that were bad, and he makes them good. He changes and saves. It's amazing. But it gets even better. Romans, Revelation 5.5 gives us a really crazy statement 
One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its, steel, its seals. Okay, so get this. Jesus is given a title called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this gets really misinterpreted in the world today. People are like, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and they're singing their reggae music, and it's really big. Rastafarian is really into this. The lion of Judah, and you know, Bob Marley always has Judah written everywhere. They have no idea that they're talking about a horrible man, a total goober. But Jesus takes this name, and, and he, he redeems it. What's going on in the story here is that John is taken to the future, he's taken to heaven, and he sees the state of the world as being totally messed up. And he sees that nobody can fix it. Nobody's found worthy to loose the scrolls of this scroll. Okay, the scroll is the title deed to the earth. The whole earth is messed up. Nobody can fix it. But then, so John starts crying, saying, who is going to fix everything? And the angel says, don't worry about it, bro. Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to loose the scroll, uh, to loose the seals and to open the scroll. John was weeping because he saw the problems of life. Judah was wanting to be comforted as well. But Judah took the path of worldly things. John waits upon the Lord, and the Lord says, I got you. I'll take care of it. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus says, I can fix it. I can really fix this world. I can open the scroll. I can loose its seven seals. Judah went to his worldly friend. John went to the true friend. John got his tears wiped away. Judah, his life is pain, sorrow, weeping, doesn't end. He's not comforted. Jesus is the lion, the king, lion speaks of king, the king who came from Judah. Jesus was born from the tribe of Judah. Now look at this, Judah was so messed up, yet Jesus identifies himself with him. All of the messed up people of the world, he also identifies with, and he says, I am your king as well. I am the king of the prostitutes and all the other messed up people. I could list them all, but it would be a long. To list everything that we've done <laughs> would be long. But he is the king of us, and he is the only one who can save us and the only one who cares for us. Your worldly friends don't care about your soul. Jesus does. And your soul's the only thing that matters. And when he says, I'm the lion of the king of Judah, I'm the, I'm the king of Judah, I'm the lion of Judah, he's saying, I am the king of messed up people. So if you're messed up, you can qualify for me to be your king. Anyone messed up? Anyone need a king? Great. Jesus says, I can do it for you. I can loose the seals. Oh, my life is so messed up though. It's like got seven seals on it. Great, I can take care of that. I can, Jesus says. That's what's so awesome about this chapter. He identifies, in Proverbs 18.24, it says, 
A, a man who has a friend must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Who is this friend that sticks closer than a brother? Jesus, who not only says, I will be your savior, but I will be your king. I want to rule your life. I want to be the king. I can take your messed up life and make it into something glorious that honors God if you let me have control. Let me have control. Oh, but Jesus, he's a mean friend because he just wants to run my life. Yes, he wants to run your life. But he deserves to run your life and he will do a way better job than you can. But then I don't have my freedom of choice. You're worshiping your freedom of choice and it's an idol that will take you to hell. Jesus can save you. He has prevailed. But you have to surrender to him. You can't hold anything back. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, meaning he knows when you're into your stuff and he still wants you. He wants you at this very last date to give him control. You, don't, you can do it now. You don't have to be Judah who lives his entire life being a total idiot. You can decide now from this day forward, I'm going to give Jesus control of my life. John 10, 10. It's a very important verse. It says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have a life and have it more abundantly. That's why I've come. That's why I don't want to rip you off. I want to bless you. So give me control. Let me run your life. The enemy, he wants to steal and kill and destroy. And his ways unfortunately, are just like your ways. Like he, he, can, he can take your natural desires and just, it's just like his. But if you'll surrender to me, do things my way, we can be done with this. I can bless you. I want to read to you um, in this devotional book, which I highly, highly recommend this book. If you can find it, buy it. Uh, it's called Come Away, My Beloved by Francis J. Roberts. And it's a series of like poems and short essays uh, of devotional things. And so I wanted to read one to you guys that I really, uh, that kind of goes with this um, about letting the Lord bless you. It's called Rain. Oh, my child, I love thee. I love thee. Get thee to the hills and look, for lo, the rain comes. The drought is over and past, and the sound of rain approaches. Yes. I will send showers of blessing upon the hearts of my waiting people. But before they call, for before they call, I have prepared to answer. And while they are seeking me, I shall come down upon them. Then they, now the people respond, O Lord, tarry not. We wait for you. We long for thee. Yea, our souls pant for thee like the thirsting deer pants for the water brooks. For we desire you with an unrelinquishing relinquishing desire. Yes, we cannot be denied, for there is no alternative. Then he says, O oh my child, I love thee, I love thee. Lift your eyes to the heavens, for lo, they are filled with clouds. Yes, they are heavy with water. Get thee back to the camp. Set out the buckets and make preparation, for already the wind arises, the leaves rustle in the trees, and the birds hasten to their nests, for lo, I come. I come to revive and to refresh. I come to quicken and to cleanse. I come as floods upon parched ground. 
so shall new life spring forth, and the desert shall be filled with flowers. For since time was, I have never forsaken my people. I have undertaken for them. I have protected them. I have delivered them in every time of need. I have rescued them from every calamity. I have denied them nothing of the soul of the desires of their hearts. They have not always asked in wisdom, but I have never failed to respond. Think ye I love my church less than I loved ancient Israel? Do you think I stretched forth my hand for them and through mighty miracles set them free from the bondages of Pharaoh and made them a way to escape through the Red Sea and provided for their daily needs through the wilderness journey and gave them water out of the rock and I will do any less for you? You are my twice beloved. You are my body, the church, and you are my chosen bride. Yea, the slightest w- your slightest wish is my command, for I desi- delight to please thee, even as a bridegroom seeks to please his bride. How much more do I long to b- bestow upon you tokens of my affection, and my love for you surpasses all human comprehension. For I am not a man that I should be limited. I need not divide my spirit among many, but I long to share with each my fullness. And there is no partiality in my love. Look not upon your lack of capacity, for I shall enlarge your heart. Open not your mouth to question me, for love questions not, but receives gladly and freely. You should do even so. You shall not be disappointed. Be not dismayed. Neither give heed to your sense of unworthiness. For lo, I have loved thee simply because I have loved thee. And what need have I have any, of any other reason? I love that book. It rocks my world. Every time I read it, I'm like, God, you love me so much. And when I look at the story of Judah in Genesis 38, I think God... So glad that I'm not Judah. And for the Judas in my life, I want to share with them that God loves them. He freaking loves you. And he wants to run your life because he loves you. Because he has this type of love where he just wants you to see how awesome he is.